Wow. Well, it is funny that uh, a few weeks ago when Chris notified me what he wanted me to teach on this week, and he said he wanted to go a little bit deeper, and he wanted to do a series on the realities of heaven and hell. And the exact text that he sent me said that I would be teaching the first week on hell because I was a lot closer to it than he was. Chris is pretty funny. So I thanked him for allowing me to teach on a subject that was uh, very tough, very scary, and something that uh, a lot of churches shy away from. And I told him that with my uh, seminary degree that this ought to be a cinch. So I apologize in advance that I couldn't think of a nice little acoustical song to end this one with, but... uh, I didn't think ACDC would fit very well in a church. So, But the truth is, Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. And yet churches are afraid to touch on it for fear of scaring people off and maybe risk losing attendance or making somebody uncomfortable. But I don't think things of importance should be sugar-coated. It was Paul in Galatians 1 verse 10 who said, If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. And truthfully for me, and I know everybody at one point or another, something that runs through your mind is what happens after we die. So for the next two weeks, we are going to do a mini-series on heaven and hell. And we're calling this Eternal Realities. Now, the Bible tells us that everything we see is temporary. And what you don't see is what's going to last forever. And eternal realities are the things that you do not see. Now, if you look around right now, look around in here, everything you see is temporary. Everything you can see right now is not going to last. Our bodies are not going to last. This building is not going to last. Everything material will fade away. It erodes. But the things that are going to last are the things that we can't see. We can't see God. We can't see the angels. We can't see the Holy Spirit. We can feel it, but we can't see it. And the Bible says that those things are going to last forever. Now, our text today is out of 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. Now, this is kind of some long scripture here, so bear with me. This is very important. But it says, Our bodies are gradually decaying and becoming weaker, as most of us can relate to that. But our spirits inside of us are growing stronger each day. These little troubles that we face here on earth are getting us ready for an eternal glory that will make all of our troubles seem like nothing. Now, listen to this. The things that are seen don't last forever, but the things that are not seen are eternal. That's why we keep our minds on the things we cannot see. Our bodies are like tents that we live in here on earth. But when these tents are destroyed, God will give us each a new place to live, and our new bodies and homes are in heaven, and they will last forever. These physical tents that we now live in right now are heavy burdens, and we groan, not just because we want to leave these bodies that are going to die, but because we want to exchange them for bodies that will never die. God is the one who makes all of this possible, 
And he has given us his spirit to make certain that he will do it. So always be cheerful. As long as we are in these earthly bodies, we are away from the Lord. So we live by faith, not by what we see. Remember, we can't see God. We can't see heaven. We live by faith. It goes on to say we'd rather leave these bodies and be at home with the Lord. But whether we're with the Lord or we're away from him, we still try our best to please him. After all, Christ will judge each of us for the good or the bad that we do while living in these bodies. So the point Paul is trying to make here is that spiritual realities are more real than physical realities. That these are the things that are going to last forever, so these are the things that we need to focus on. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12 says, Right now we are looking in a mirror that gives only a dim reflection of reality. But one day we shall see reality face to face. So for the next two weeks we're going to look at the reality of heaven and we are going to look at the reality of hell. And these are two of the eternal realities that God wants us to understand. So what are the realities of life? They're all found in the Bible, God's Word. And this morning I just want us to start before we actually look at the text today. And I want us to look at five spiritual realities. And the first reality of life is God made you to love you. And He wants you to learn to love Him back. So God made you to love you and He wants you to learn to love Him back. This is the first and foremost reality of life, that God exists. And He made you to love you, and He wants you to love Him back. You were made by God, and you were made for God. And until you understand that, life is not going to make sense. It's all about God. Everything is for His glory. You were created as an object of God's love. There's never been a person made that God doesn't love. There's a lot of them we have a hard time tolerating, but God loves them. And not only does He love you, but He's given you the capacity to love Him back, to get to know Him. The Bible says all the great commandments are summarized. Love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two first great commandments. And it's all about love. So God says, I made you to love you, and I want you to learn to love me back. That's the first reality of life. Now God says this in the book of Jeremiah 31, verse 3. I have loved you with an everlasting love, and with unfailing love I have drawn you to myself. So God says, I'm trying to draw you to me. I want you to get to know me. And I want you to understand how much I love you. So he wants you to know and love him back. Now the second reality of life is this. You were made to last forever. You were made to last forever. One day your heart's going to stop beating and that's going to be the end of your body, but certainly that's not going to be the end of you. The Bible says that you and I, as human beings, were created in the image of God, which means God put us in eternity. The Bible says He has planted eternity in the human heart. So that's why no matter how good things are here, 
there's still a longing in you, and you still say at some point, there's got to be more than this. And the truth is, there is more than that. There's heaven. You're going to spend far more time on the other side of death than here. Here we get 60 years, 80 years, 100 years if you're lucky. There, we're going to get trillions and trillions of years. Can you comprehend that? This is the warm-up. This is kindergarten, which my son took twice. But This is the first lap around the racetrack, but real life is going to go on in heaven. The Bible says that this side is getting you ready for that side. Life is preparation for eternity. You were made to last forever, and he put eternity in your heart. And because of that, we have the third great reality of life. And that is God has prepared two eternal places, heaven and hell. So God has prepared two eternal places, heaven and hell. Heaven is real. Hell is real. These are literal places. There's a real place called heaven. There is a real place called hell. And we're going to be looking at these for the next two weeks. See, the Bible tells us first that there's a real heaven. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Notice it says a place. I'm going to prepare a place for you. It's an actual place. And who's it prepared for? It's prepared for you. God is preparing it for us to be a part of his family. He says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am you may be also. So he says, where I'm going, I want you to go too. So heaven is the presence of God, but it's a real place. The Bible tells us a lot about heaven. And Chris is going to be explaining a lot of that next week. But Matthew 25, verse 34, Jesus says this, Come you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Now if you listen to that, you notice that when God created the world, he was also creating heaven. So God has been preparing heaven since the beginning of the world, since the foundations of the world. And why is that? Because this is not your permanent resting place. We should be grateful that we don't live on this planet forever. This place is broken. It's broken with sin and suffering and sickness and evil. There's nothing perfect on this planet except the Word of God. That's it. No relationship is perfect. No job is perfect. Our bodies don't work perfectly. Everything's broken on this planet, and it's broken because of sin. So I'm glad we don't have to stay on a broken planet. We're going to a place of perfection, and he said we get to spend eternity there. So heaven is a real place. But hell is a real place. Notice what the Bible says. Jesus said, then he, God, will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, 
into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So Satan's angels are called demons. Satan rebelled against God. Hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. It wasn't originally intended for human beings. Did you catch that earlier? Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. That's heaven. But hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. But if I choose to rebel against God, just like Satan did, and I choose to reject God, and I choose to say I'm going to be my own God, I'm going to do what I want to do, I'm going to be what I want to be, I'm going to say the things that I want to say, then I rebel like Satan, and I go where Satan goes. So there is a real heaven, and there is a real hell. Now here's the fourth reality. You get to choose where you'll spend eternity. You get to choose where you'll spend eternity. It's your choice. And this is the same kind of choice that God gave to Israel in the New Testament. In the book of Deuteronomy, God says this to the people of Israel. Today I'm giving you the choice between a blessing and a curse. You'll be blessed if you obey the commands of the Lord your God or you'll receive a curse if you reject me and my commands. Another verse, Deuteronomy 30, verse 15, says, See, I have set before you today life and death, or life and good, or death and evil. So he says, here's a choice. You can choose between good and life, or you can choose between doing evil and death. It's your choice. He says, if you obey my commandments by loving the Lord your God, the most important commandment, and by walking in his ways, then you'll live and you'll multiply and I will bless you. But if your heart turns away from me to worship other things, why would somebody want to worship something other than God? Because we can. You can worship your car. You can worship your career. You can worship status. You can worship sex. You can worship money or possessions or power or popularity or prestige. You could worship yourself. Everybody has a God. Even atheists have a God. It may be themselves. In you, there is an inbuilt wired desire to worship. And if you don't worship the true God, you're going to choose to worship something else. And a false God is called an idol. And God says, you don't have anything before me. Anything you put before God in your life, you worship. If you put your career before God, if you put making money before God, if you put having fun before God, anything you put before God becomes the God in your life and you worship it. And then he goes on to say, if your heart turns away from me to worship other things and to serve them, then you will perish. Therefore, choose life. Choose life that you may live. I'm going to give you an example of this. Let's suppose you're a drug addict and you're living on the streets of Muncie and you're sleeping under a bridge. Your life is falling apart because you're hopelessly addicted to drugs. You're laying there on the side of the street, in the gutter, in your own puke. You haven't bathed in days or weeks. Your life is a total mess. Then let's say I come walking by and I feel pity. 
I feel grace. I feel love towards you. And I say, let me help you out. You don't deserve this, but I'm going to help you up. I'm going to show you grace, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pick you up, and I'm going to take you home to my house. I'm going to allow you to bathe and get cleaned up, and I'm going to give you a new set of clothes. But that's not all I'm going to do. I'm going to let you live with me at my house. You can become a part of my family. In fact, I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to pay off all your debts you owe because you spent all your money on drugs. I'm going to give you my credit card. You're going to have the entire resources of my family. You've got my name. You've got my credit. You can live in my house. You are a part of my family. And I'm doing this simply because I love you. You don't deserve it. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. I just love you and I want to show you grace. However, if you live in my house as part of my family, there are some house rules. You've got to abide by these rules if you're going to live in my house and you're going to be a part of my family. And rule number one is this. We don't do drugs in this house. We don't do drugs at all. If you're going to live here and you're going to have access to all these free privileges and resources, we do not do drugs. So let me ask you, is it reasonable for me to expect that person to abide by the family house rules? Of course it is. I'm showing them grace. If they're going to live in my house, then they ought to live by the rules that I set up because it's my house. And the same's true with you. If you say, Chuck, I've got a lake cottage and you're welcome to go there and stay for two weeks. But there's a couple house rules you've got to follow. No jumping on the bed. It's reasonable. It's your house. You get to make the rules. If I'm going to use your house, then I'm going to abide by your rules. You lock up and you don't jump on the bed. Fine, that's reasonable. If I offered you, if I said, come live at my house, and you're on drugs and you reject it, you say, thanks for the offer, but I'm going to choose to live on Skid Row because the truth is I love my drugs and I'm not willing to give them up. I'm not willing to give the drugs up to be a part of your family. I'm not willing to give them up for all the other benefits that you just said. Because I love my drugs. So I'm going to choose to live here on Skid Row in spite of your gracious offer. So if you turn me down, would that be my fault? It'd be your fault. Could you blame me for being unloving? No, I've done the loving thing to offer to get you out of the situation. You couldn't blame me at all for being unloving. Now let's apply that same logic to heaven. Because I hear people all the time say, how could a loving God send people to hell? God doesn't send people to hell. You choose to go there. It's like there's two doors in eternity. 
One goes to heaven, one goes to hell. The one that goes to heaven says, you come to Jesus. This is the house rule. He's already paid for your ticket to heaven. He's already forgiven you. All you've got to do is accept it. It's a free gift of grace and you go to heaven. Now, if you want to go to hell, you just do your own thing. You say, I'm going to be my own God. I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't want anybody telling me what's right or wrong. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I want to run my own life. And if I choose to walk out that door, then I certainly can't blame God. He's done everything possible for me to go to heaven. He's already paid for it in full. He's made it so easy, you just have to accept it by faith. Now, if I say no thank you, I'd rather stick with what I love more, then that's not God's fault. It was my choice, and it's my fault. Does God have the right to make house rules for His house? It's His house. In heaven, He has a right to say, if you want to come to heaven, this is how you get here. How do you get here? Not by earning it. Not by working for it. Not by being good. But simply by accepting the grace that His Son did for you by dying on the cross for you. So if I reject His condition for entering heaven... He's not being unloving. I'm being dumb. I'm being illogical. Can anybody blame God if I choose to say I'm going to go my way out this door into eternity? It's my choice. Now there's one more eternal reality that I want to cover. And it's this. There's no second chance after you die. There's no second chance. You get to choose where you're going to spend eternity, but you have to choose now while you're alive. In other words, I can't walk out this door and say, oh, I don't like that, and I want to go back. God says, I gave you an entire lifetime to make the right decisions, and you didn't take it. You kept putting it off, you kept putting it off. I gave you an entire lifetime. So there's no halfway house between heaven and hell. There's no intermediate state. There's no limbo. There's no purgatory. I know some of you may have been raised Catholic, but purgatory is not in the Bible. It's not something that Jesus taught. It's not something that God taught. It was created in the Middle Ages. Purgatory is not in the Bible. In fact, Catholics don't even believe it anymore. When Jesus was dying on the cross, there was a guy next to him who had been a criminal his entire life. His entire life this guy did bad. And in his last seconds, he has a deathbed conversion. So he's dying on the cross to Jesus next to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into paradise. That's the only thing he knew about salvation is that this Jesus can save him. He didn't know the doctrines. He didn't know all kinds of fancy words and lingo and stuff like that. He simply said yes to Jesus. 
And Jesus looks at him and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. So what's it take to get to heaven? You say yes to Jesus Christ. And like the story, he says, today. Not next week. There may not even be a next week. Not next month, not in two or three years while you've got people praying for you or you feel like that you need to get certain things out of your system first. He says today, the moment you die, you're going to go straight to heaven or you're going to go straight to hell. It's your choice here on earth and God is doing everything to make sure that you go to heaven. This is so important. What we're talking about today is your eternal destiny. I can't imagine a more important teaching than this. I really... We just have to listen like our life depends on it, because seriously, it does. Now, next week, Chris gets to talk about heaven, because he's apparently closer to it than I am. But today... I want to ask four questions. Why does hell exist? What is hell like? How do I avoid it? That being the most important one. And what do I do once I know about all this? So first, why does hell exist? Now there's two fundamental reasons. And the first is because sin and evil exist. Because sin and evil exist. Now there's some people that want to deny the existence of evil. They think that basically people are good. But have you turned on the TV or read the newspaper or listen to the radio. This world is filled with broken relationships, broken promises, rape, murder, abuse, terrorism. This world is filled with evil. It's all around us. We read about little children picked up on the street and sold into sex trafficking. And fundamentally, the Bible teaches that it's my nature to not think about you. It's my nature to be selfish. It's your nature to be selfish. You think about you more than you think about anybody else. You're not naturally thinking, what's best for other people? What would God want me to do? You're thinking, what do I want to do? What's going to be easiest for me? What would I like to do? Now, maybe if you lived... Years ago on the prairie, next to Charles Ingalls, you might think that basically people are good. But with all the media around us, we know that the world is filled with evil. Evil things happen, and they happen often. And what was true in Noah's day is still true today. In Genesis 8, verse 5 and 6, it says, the Lord observed the extent of people's wickedness, and he saw all their thoughts were consistently and totally evil. And he was sorry 
that he had ever made them. So he was sorry that he made the human race. And it broke his heart. So God looked down on the world in Noah's day and he goes, what a mess they've made of this. What they do to themselves, what they do to each other. What they do to this planet that I gave them. They've really made a mess of things. They're really screwing things up. And that's the way God feels today. And he says it broke his heart. Did you know that God has emotions? I mean, the reason you have emotions is because God made you in his image. The reason you have the ability to feel, the reason you have the ability to have your heart broken is because God is an emotional God and you were made in his image. And when God looks at all the things in the world that are wrong and that are bad and that are evil, it breaks his heart. People say, well, where's God in all of this? Genocide, murder, rape, child molestation. Where's God? He's crying. That's where he's at. God is weeping. Why doesn't he stop it? He could. But God could eliminate all the evil in the world but he would have to get rid of all of us. Because that's where it comes from, our poor choices. You can't tell me that your decisions have never hurt someone. Because we hurt each other. You see, God gave us free will. That's our greatest gift, but it's our worst curse. Because we don't always make wise decisions. We often choose wrong, and as a result, people get hurt. God could take away all the sin, all the suffering, all the sickness, and all the evil in the world with just a snap. Take away us or our free will. So, why does God give us free will? Because he wanted you to choose to love him, not be forced to love him. It's not real love if you're forced to love. Love is only love if you can choose not to love. God gives you a choice. You don't have to love God. You don't have to trust God. You don't have to obey God. You don't have to follow in his ways. You don't have to fulfill the purpose that he created you for. He wants you to choose to love Him. He wants us to choose to do what's right. God wanted a family that would live with Him forever. And He wanted to produce a race of tested individuals who voluntarily choose to love and choose to do the right things. And that can't be possible unless we're allowed to choose to do the wrong things. So that's our greatest blessing, but it's also our greatest curse. And it still breaks God's heart today when we hurt ourselves, or when we hurt other people, or when we hurt the planet that he's put us on. You need to understand, God allows sin on earth simply for this choice, so that you have a choice. But he does not allow sin in heaven. Heaven is a perfect place. There is absolutely no sin there. 
which raises an important problem. If heaven is a perfect place, which means only perfect people get to go there. Otherwise, if God let imperfect people come in with all their selfishness and their sin and their sorrow and all of their sicknesses, then it would be just like earth. It wouldn't be heaven anymore. And I don't want to go to heaven where Hitler can do his thing, or Hussein, or Tom Brady. I want to go to heaven where it's perfect, where we're away from all of that, so only perfect people get to go there. Now that becomes a problem, because I'm not perfect, and neither are any of you. And David asked this question. In the book of Psalms, in Psalm 15, verse 1, David says, Lord, who may enter your holy tent? Lord, who may live on your holy mountain? He's speaking of heaven. And here's the condition. Only those who are completely blameless and innocent and those who always do what is right. don't know about you, but I don't fit in that category. I'm not blameless. I'm not innocent. I do not always do what is right. So I've got a problem. There's not a snowball's chance in hell of me making it into heaven unless God comes up with a plan B. Because if heaven's perfect and I stop batting a thousand at about age one, the Bible says we've all sinned. We've all blown it. We don't even measure up to our own standards, much less God's. A second reason that hell exists is because God is holy and just. Because He's holy and just. He's holy. That means He's perfect. He's just. means he believes in justice. He settles the score. He always does the right thing. The Bible says that one day God's going to balance the books. God is going to bring justice to the world. He's going to right the wrongs. He's going to settle the score. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but life is unfair. What if you'd been born in Darfur? Was it fair that you were born in America with a silver spoon while someone else was born in Darfur? And I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but people get away with all kinds of stuff here. Bad stuff. And bad things happen to good people. People who cheat and steal often become successful. People who try to do right and live the right way, things don't always seem to always work out in their lives. Life is not fair. Now David said in the Psalms, I would have despaired if I hadn't believed in the goodness of God. I know a lot of you have felt that way before. People do bad things and they get away with it. People do good things and they don't always get rewarded for it. 
And if I didn't believe that one day God's going to settle the score, that God is just, he's going to tip the scales, he's going to even it all out, there's going to be repayment, there's going to be justice, then it just wouldn't be right. One day God is going to settle the score. The Bible says this, for the Lord is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the nations fairly and with truth. And it says this in Thessalonians 1. God will do what is right. God is a righteous God and he will bring suffering on those who make you suffer. And he will give relief to you who suffer as well. He will do this when the Lord Jesus appears from heaven to punish those who reject God. Who do not obey the good news about our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction separated from the presence of the Lord. Notice what that said, separated from the presence of the Lord. That's the number one characteristic of hell, separated from the presence of the Lord. People don't realize how bad that is because we have the Lord's presence here. Here on earth, even when I reject God, He shows me grace. I can be out here totally ignoring God, and I still get all kinds of gifts from God because everything's a gift from God. Everything in your life is a gift of God's grace. Even people who don't know the Lord experience God's grace every single day. We don't know what it means to live without God's grace. And he says, one day I'm going to settle the score. And the only problem with that is we're involved in that too. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says, We will all stand before Christ to be judged. In other words, not just our enemies. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or the evil that we have done in our bodies. So why does hell exist? Because sin and evil exist and because God is holy and just. So what is hell like? This is a very hard one to explain because we don't have the human experience to explain it. It's like if you've never eaten or seen a piece of pizza, how would you explain it to somebody? But the Bible describes it as a place of torment. In Matthew 8 it says, In darkness they will cry out and grit their teeth in pain. And then, of course, we all have our own visions of fire and stuff like that. But you know what the worst part is? It's total separation from God. That's the worst part about it. It means I'm totally apart from God's love. I'm totally apart from God's grace. Total separation from God. In Corinthians 16, verse 22, it says, Anyone who does not love the Lord, let him be separated from God and lost forever. So here it is. If I go through my entire life saying I don't want God in my life, if I don't want God in my life while I'm here on earth, why would I want Him in eternity? It doesn't make any sense. God says you get to choose. You want to live with me or without me. Wherever you choose on earth is where you choose in heaven or hell. So what is hell like? If you think about this, if it's total separation from God, then it's the exact opposite of everything God is. God is love. 
We know that. God is love. That's his nature. What would it be to live without God completely? It means absolutely no love. The Bible says there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out all fear. So the opposite of love is fear. You know what it means to live without love in your life? It means you're scared to death all the time. That's hell. It means you're lonely all the time. That's hell. One of the big myths about hell is that in hell it's just going to be some big old party for everybody that likes to party. No one's going to see anybody else in hell. It's total separation from God and everybody else. There's no relationships in hell. There's no friends in hell. At least you're not going to see them. It's total aloneness. And there's another myth that says Satan is going to be in charge in hell. That's wrong. Satan's not in hell right now. The Bible says he's here on earth. He's going to be sent to hell, but he's not going to be in charge of it like some kingdom. He's going to be sent there to be punished. God is love, so there's no love there. God is light, so hell is complete darkness. God is good, so there's absolutely nothing that can be good in hell. God is life, means that'll be eternal death. God is gracious, so that means there's no place of grace there. So how do I avoid hell? Is there a way for me to be absolutely certain that I'm going to heaven? And there is. The Bible tells us how to do it. So how do I settle my destiny? John says this in 1 John 5, verse 13. I write this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know with settled and absolute knowledge that you already have life. Yes, eternal life. Circle the word no. Take your pen and circle the word no. It's not guess. It's not wonder. It's not hope. God doesn't want you guessing. If you leave today and you ask somebody, where are you going when you die? And they say, well, I'm hope, I hope I'm going to heaven. Hope is not enough. It's too important. It's too important not to know for certain. Only a fool would go all the way through life totally unprepared for what we all know is inevitable, and that's death. You are going to die. The person next to you is going to die. Only a fool would go all through life saying, yeah, you know, I know I need to decide this, but I'm going to put it off, and I'm going to keep putting it off and putting it off. You have no idea if you're going to drop dead today or tomorrow. I could walk out of this church on any given Sunday. Chris Bunch could be pulling out in his Suburban, texting while he's driving. A little Justin Bieber blasting on the stereo. Bam! The point is, I'm not guaranteed tomorrow. I'm not guaranteed next week. 
So why would you put something off that is inevitable and that could come at any time? You know, I don't know where Chris Bunch is lurking all the time. When we finish today, we're going to pray a prayer that I want everyone to pray so that everybody here knows for sure, without a shadow of a doubt, that you are going to heaven. So he says, I want you to trust me. And I want you to know that you can be absolutely certain that you have eternal life. So how do I settle it? Your ticket is in Jesus Christ. 1 John 5 verse 11 says, God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's about as clear as you could possibly get. And that's why Christmas and Easter are so important. If Jesus hadn't come at Christmas, or later on, if he hadn't died on the cross and then came back to life three days later on Easter, which we're going to be celebrating soon, we wouldn't even be having this discussion. We would all be hopeless. Remember, heaven's perfect, and we're not. So that plan B, God came up with. And it was a plan that somebody would die for all my sins and for all of your sins. And he would do it himself so that we, by his grace, could go to heaven. So that is why Christmas and that is why Easter are so important. The cross is the answer to our problem. It says in Colossians 2 verse 21, at one time you were separated from God. You were his enemies in your minds and the evil things you did were against God. In other words, God, I'm going to run my own life. Nobody has the right to tell me what's right or wrong. Nobody has the right to tell me what to do. I'm going to make my own choices. And he said you rebelled just like Satan did. But now God has made you his friends again. And he did this through Christ's death in the body when he died on the cross so that he might bring you into God's presence. What's God's presence? Heaven. And when he brings you in, how are you going to be? It says, as people who are holy, with no wrong, nothing of which God can judge you. He's saying, I'm going to wipe the slate clean. I'm going to make you clean. I'm going to make you pure. He says, that is what I'm going to do with your life. The most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is your ticket to heaven. I've had season tickets for the Colts since Peyton Manning was a rookie. They don't compare to this ticket. The 06 season was kind of close, but still no comparison. Now, out of John 3.16, I've underlined six words. God's only son 
perish eternal life. And you take the first letters of that and it spells gospel. What is the gospel? Gospel is the old English word for good news. That's all it is. Gospel is the good news that God's only Son came and He gave His life for us so that we would not perish but have everlasting life. I'm going to summarize everything in four words. They're going to be A, B, C, and D. A is admit. Admit. The first thing I do is I admit I need a Savior to get to heaven. That means I admit that I'm not perfect. I've blown it. I've made mistakes. I'm flawed. I've sinned. We just admit it. We own up to it. This is tough for some of us, though, because of pride. In order for you to get to heaven, you have to humble yourself. And believe me, if you didn't need a Savior, God wouldn't have wasted the time sending Jesus to die on the cross for you. If there was any other way for you to get to heaven, don't you think he would have done a less painful way than come himself and die on the cross for you? There was no other way for you to get to heaven. So first, you admit that you need a Savior. B, I believe that Jesus died for me. I believe that Jesus died for me. And believe means more than head knowledge. It means I trust in, I rely on, I surrender to, I commit myself to. Romans 10 verse 9 says this, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that's what Easter is all about, then you will be saved. So what does it mean to confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord? It means to say, Jesus, you are the one that's in control. You're calling the shots. That's what it means to make Jesus the Lord of your life. So I admit I need a Savior to get to heaven. I believe that Jesus died for me and I confess Him as Lord. See as I commit myself completely to Him. I commit myself completely to Him. I say, Lord... I want to do your plan for my life. I want to do the purpose that you put me here to do. And I commit myself to you. And that commitment, you need to do it publicly. You need to make a public commitment to Jesus Christ. Now what if eventually... I meet some lady and she thinks I'm like really hot. And I say, honey, I'm committed to you. So let's get married, but let's not tell anybody about it. 
What kind of commitment would that be? She'd say, Buster, are you ashamed of me? You won't even tell anybody about me? If you won't tell anybody about me, then you're not committed to me. A private commitment is no commitment at all. You have to make it public. You married couples stood up in front of a bunch of people and you said, I do. And you wear a ring everywhere you go. You men wear your rings because you're proud of your wives. You love her. You're committed to her till death do you part. What's the wedding ring of the Christian life? There's two ways. It's baptism and joining a church. That's your coming out party. It's you saying, I'm coming out of the closet. I'm committed to Christ. Being baptized and joining the church doesn't make you a believer, but it shows that you are. Your ring doesn't make you married. It shows that you're married. Jesus said this, If anyone acknowledges me publicly here on earth, I will openly acknowledge that person before my Father which is in heaven. But if anyone denies me here on earth, I will deny that person before my Father in heaven. So are you ashamed of Jesus Christ? Does anybody know that you're a Christian? Do the people you work with know you're a Christian? Have you been baptized? And if not, what are you waiting for? This church has four baptisms a year. Sign up for the baptism class. Sign up today after the celebration on the connections table. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you in heaven. But if you stand up for me, I will stand up for you in heaven. Another way you can stand up publicly is to join a church. Now that's saying that's more than just attending a church. It's joining a church. What does joining a church mean? It means saying I'm not ashamed to say that I'm part of the body of Christ. One day you are going to stand before God. You're going to stand before Jesus Christ, your Savior, who died on the cross for you, and you're going to see the holes in His hands from the nails. And He's going to say, what did you do with your life? He's not going to be interested in hearing that you joined the country club or the scrapbooking club or any social or service organization. He's going to say, did you join my family? You join my family. 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 You need to join. And if you've taken that course and you're not baptized, don't put it off any longer. You need to be baptized. I admit, I believe, I commit. My public expression of that commitment is baptism and joining a church. Last is D. I depend on God's promise. I depend on God's promise. When I depend on God's promise, what's the promise? That whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
Next week, we're going to talk about heaven. And you don't want to miss that one. If you think about all the greatest things you've ever done here on earth, and then you think about a billion times better than that, that's heaven. But to get there, you have to depend on God's promise. So let today be that day. Do not wait any longer. I want the prayer team to come forward. And I want them to just be ready for anybody that needs prayer afterwards. Whoever they are this week. I'm going to lead everybody in a prayer. And I just want you to pray it with me in your hearts. And I want you to know today, beyond a shadow of a doubt, where you are going. I want you to be able to pick your door today. Let's pray. Dear God, you are God and I am not. I admit it. I'm humbling myself and I'm letting go of my pride. And I'm saying I realize, I admit that I need a Savior to get into heaven. I know that I could never be good enough. I know that I've done wrong. I am flawed. I have sinned. And I need a Savior to get me into heaven. Thank you, God, that you so loved the world that you gave your only Son Jesus to me. That if I would believe in you, I could receive eternal life. So Jesus Christ, I believe that you died for me. Today, I commit myself to you. I want to change. I want to repent. I want to be what you want me to be, not what I want to be. I commit myself completely to you, to follow you, to trust you, to serve you, to know you, to love you. I'm going to depend on your promise that you've said, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I want that assurance so there's no doubt in my mind that I've committed myself to you and I've trusted you for my salvation. Thank you for dying and for loving me. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Anybody needs prayer, come forward. You guys have an awesome week. You don't want to miss next week. Know you're always loved in this place.